0: I think he might come with Venom. Uh.
1: <laughs> venom come? Yeah? No way. <laughs>
0: Welcome to All My Friends Are English Majors, the podcast where I, a business major, make my friends, all English majors, read popular fiction with me. This month I do have an English major, everybody, stop the presses. Um, My college roommate Jess is on the pod, and she is an English major. Jess, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Yes. Hi, I'm Jess. I am a... Long time fan, first time guest, so excited to be here. Um, I have two degrees in English, so I'm going to try to not be too, too English majory on the pod, because, well, To just pull back the curtain. We recorded once before for Conversations with Friends, and I messed up the audio, so we're having to record it again, which is good because I did act like I was in a seminar trying to impress my teacher. So (laughs) I'm glad that I get a second try to be normal.
0: Because, like, the opinions that we have about Sally Rooney, like, are pretty normal. I feel like. There's, like, lots of things to talk about as, like, Young women in their 20s reading about young women in their 20s that aren't a book report. But also, I will say part of the fun part about doing this with English majors and the reason I wanted to do the podcast was, like, I would read a book like normal people and be like, oh, that made me have a lot of feelings. That's good. And then Jess would be like, yeah, did you think about... And then Or my mom would read a book that I also enjoyed and she would be like, yeah, did you notice... And then she would name some, like, literary concept, and I'd be like, no, I just thought it was fun. Like, I enjoyed it. (laughs) So, like, everybody reads differently, and that's the fun part of it.
1: Yeah, and sometimes, like, the discipline of English, like, basically what it is, is, like, not even reading differently from other people, but just, like, having a name for the thing the author is doing to elicit that reaction from you. Like, you're like, wow, I really connected with, this way of approaching, like, representing conflict between two characters. And, like, if you have taken a bunch of classes where all you're doing is reading books and kind of talking about how they are built, then you are like, oh, yeah, like, that comes from what's said here and unsaid here and how the dialogue is arranged and, like, all that stuff where you're seeing that even as a, like, non-English major, but you maybe don't have, like, the word to define it. And so that's kind of where those of us with our silly little degrees can step <laughs> in and <laughs> have things to say.
0: I think that people underestimate, like, I got a very, um, a very pragmatic degree and, like, I think regretted it almost immediately. <laughs> and I think that a lot of people think that getting, like, an English major is not a very pr- pragmatic degree degree but I also think that people might underestimate the importance of being able to like put your thoughts and feelings into words and like yeah being able to express yourself eloquently and being able to like like do you think that doing a major where all you do is read like history and English and like things that are considered foolish degrees makes you like less likely to be guilty of consuming disinformation like do you think that you are a better critical thinker by doing those sorts of like liberal arts things
1: yeah i think that that's kind of a big question because like the english department Especially at Truman State University, which is, I guess is the only English department that I really know. But Both my degrees are from there, so I'll only speak for that. But, like, they are constantly telling you that, that, like, the degree that you're getting is not just good because it will help you to be an editor or a copywriter or a teacher, which is what I am. Uh, but it will also, like, make you a more, like, informed citizen and able to kind of, like, suss out – like manipulative media, where it may be lying in wait for you. But I think that it's a little bit more complex than that. I think that it kind of is English departments justifying their own existence to be like, see, be a good citizen, be an English major. When I know a lot of people who are like really intelligent readers and really intelligent, like, consumers of media people who are very media literate who got degrees in like all sorts of things it kind of depends on like what you do with your free time I think and like how you approach stuff and also to be honest like there were a lot of people in my English classes who I was like you never fucking learn how to read like (laughs) you can read but you can't read yeah and (laughs) it would be really frustrating because I was like this is the only thing you're supposed to be doing but you're still like reading on a very surface level. And that's probably me being kind of like pretentious and thinking that I'm smarter than other people. But I do think that like an English degree, you'll get out of it what you get, what you put into it, just like with lots of other things. And you can really like grow as a person and like become a lot smarter in like really deep and meaningful ways through it. But you also can like bumble your way through it and read a bunch of stuff that will like maybe make you a worse person. (laughs) Um, So I don't, I don't really know. I think that I, as an English teacher, as a high school English teacher, do try to make that claim to students a lot because a lot of the time they're like wondering why in the world they have to read poetry. Um, I do think that it has like the potential for like uplifting the human condition or illuminating the human condition but it definitely doesn't always sometimes people really don't know what they're talking about so i don't know but not us on the podcast (laughs) no no one
0: on this podcast has ever said anything silly or foolish or anything that she wanted to edit out and then had to leave because (laughs) she is trying to create honest media do we want to get into the book it's guys it's sally rooney month i feel like we felt like we already said that because. We did when we recorded for an hour and a half last Friday night, but, (laughs) um, we're starting again. This, we're reading Sally Rooney's books. We're reading them in chronological order, um, as they were written. So we're starting with conversation with friends and then we'll do normal people and then we'll do beautiful world. Where are you? So we're starting with conversations with friends. Jess, do you want to read the back of the book?
1: Yes, I will read the back of the book. Okay, so right under a bunch of descriptions of all of its awards that it got, it has this synopsis. Frances is a cool-headed and darkly observant young woman, vaguely pursuing a career in writing while studying in Dublin. Her best friend is the beautiful and endlessly self-possessed Bobby. At a local poetry performance one night, they meet a well-known photographer, and as the girls are then drawn into her world, Frances is reluctantly impressed by the older woman's sophisticated home and handsome husband Nick. But however amusing Francis and Nick's flirtation seems at first, it begins to give way to a strange and then painful intimacy. Written with gem like precision and marked by a sly sense of humor, Conversations with Friends is wonderfully alive to the pleasures and dangers of youth and the messy edges of female friendship. Do you think that's a good synopsis, Tuck?
0: I think it's a good synopsis. I also think that the back of the book itself already sets us up. If you look at it after you read the whole book, you can see that even from the back of the book, we are going to come to understand how unreliable Francis's narration is. Hmm. Like, even the back of the book is passive.
1: Yeah however amusing their flirtation seems at first, it begins to give way to a strange and then painful intimacy. It's a very, like, okay, this just kind of, like, happened to us.
0: Well, and even even when Frances tells, spoiler, tells Nick that she loves him, it's almost as if she loves him against her will. As if loving yeah. him is just something that happened to her, as opposed to, like, falling in love with someone, which is, like, why we say it like that, is, like, you don't just go from liking someone to loving them. Like, there, there is a falling part first, at least in my and opinion. Like, it is like... a process.
1: You're involved but in, in it. <laughs> yeah, I, but, like, the way that this sort of, it, the way it unfolds in this book is almost like she's, like, falling ill like she's like coming down with something
0: <laughs> and the coming down with it is like oh i love nick but not yeah. in any sort of like passionate way it's not like in like an enemies to lover romance where like they realize it and it like kind of blows things up for them a little bit it's just like ah, man another burden
1: yeah and part of that's probably because they like start Sleeping together without either of them knowing what they want. We should summarize the book. Yeah. Do you want to do a a two minute summary?
0: (laughs) Yes. Everyone, I will tell you, I read this at this point 10 days ago, but here it comes off the dome. Francis and Bobby are best friends. They dated a little bit in high school. When we enter the book, Francis and Bobby have just done a poetry reading and, um, Nick's wife, I'm committing a crime against women. What's her name? Melissa. Melissa? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Melissa, um, is like, oh my gosh, I'm a photographer. I was so impressed with you guys. And Bobby is immediately infatuated and is like, Francis, we have to hang out with Melissa and Nick. We have to go to dinner at their house. I'm obsessed with her. I have a crush on her. But we're like, seeing it from Francis's point of view. And so Francis is basically like, I'm getting too in the weeds. The whole book is from Francis's point of view. So like what we understand about the book is all through Francis's lens. So they go to this dinner. Francis meets Nick. He invites them to see one of his shows that he's acting in. And then he comes to see one of her poetry readings. And then they start emailing each other. And then they go to the French countryside with Melissa and Nick and a couple of their friends. And, like, through all of this, Nick and Francis are really flirting over email and then eventually start hooking up and then eventually start quasi-dating and then date for real. But throughout all of this, Francis is also, like, trying to maintain her friendship with Bobby and, like trying to figure out what she's going to do with her life and how she doesn't want to do anything and trying to navigate getting diagnosed with endometriosis and like trying to navigate like being a homewrecker but not really being a homewrecker and like she's navigating a lot she's also like 21 and he's what like 32 and we didn't Mm. talk about the age difference at all last time yeah. we recorded which that's a whole nother can of worms is that a good enough right. summary
1: yeah and I, <laughs> the only thing that I would add is that Nick is also like sort of like he's still married and like sort of is separated from his wife like they're not not sleeping together and then they start sleeping together again and Melissa doesn't know, and then she does know, and so they're kind of like in the weeds with that as well. And so that's an added complicated factor. Like it's not, which I mean, we're getting to the idea of her being an unreliable narrator again, where like it's all these things that she's navigating, but then he also kind of has this complex thing that's happening on his side as well. Like their marriage is very complex, and we kind of get to see that towards the end of novel but I think other than that you did a pretty good job
0: thank you I I sometimes think it's hard to summarize a well I do think it's hard to summarize a book written in a first person and I do think it's hard to summarize a book where like so much of what's happening is happening in the character's own mind because like yeah We could summarize this book in truly four sentences if we don't talk about what makes it the book that it is.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like like if you just kind of say, like, a young woman has an affair with an older man.
0: (laughs) And you know what? That is what happens.
1: Yeah, that could be so many different books. Yeah.
0: But, like, let's see, should we get into the journey I went through reading this book.
1: Yes, I want you to, I want you to tell, tell us about how you had your own arc as reading this book.
0: (laughs) I did have my own arc, and I think that this whole arc just proves that, like, I am the reader who is so easily manipulated, like, (laughs) like, not critically thinking reading this book. I started this outline with, is it too hater to have a category that's literally just all the things I find annoying about Bobby? You must understand that at the beginning of this book, Frances is like, Bobby is just the most charismatic person in the entire world, and it's, like, not her fault that everyone loves her, but, like, it's kind of selfish that she doesn't notice that everyone loves her, and that I love her too, and that, like, Like, the way that she portrays Bobby, the way that she is describing Bobby, like, if you look at it through any lens that isn't Francis, like, Bobby is just acting like a normal person. So I, like, listed a couple of things I found annoying about Bobby, and then immediately wrote in the outline, is this a bad thought exercise? And then three lines down... It is a bad thought exercise. Frances is such an unreliable narrator. Oh my god. Like, she really is. Because as Francis like, moves further into the book, like, we come to understand that, like, Bobby is generally a pretty good friend to her. Like... Francis doesn't have very much money. Like, Bobby really just, like, quietly pays for things. Francis becomes very ill with endometriosis. Like, Bobby physically takes care of her. Like, like, they look out for each other, and you come to understand that. But because Francis is so focused on her own, like, wilting wallflower self, it immediately makes Bobby seem like she is, like, shining kind of obnoxiously in comparison
1: right and also like it it exaggerates the flaws that bobby does have because it is true that there are some things that bobby does in this book that are objectively not the best (laughs) so for instance one of the things probably to me the most egregious things that, that she does is she suspects that Nick has a crush on Francis and she knows that Francis has like a little crush on Nick, but she doesn't think that anything is happening between them. And so they're all hanging out together in France and Francis and Nick have already been sleeping together and they're sleeping together in this like vacation home that Melissa is also staying in, which I think is brazen. I think that's crazy, but that is neither here nor there for this. But Bobby like, constructs this kind of, like, elaborate situation in which she sort of calls out Nick for having a crush on Francis in front of everyone, including Melissa. And Bobby sort of has this, like, complex trait that's both, like, a strength and a flaw in Francis's eyes that she, like, has this ability, I think this is how Francis says it, to, like, get inside of anything and blow it up. Like, she, like, kind of understands things. She, like, has this incisive like, intuition, this, like, knowledge of things where she's able to, like, get to the heart of it, and then she wants to, like, blow it up so that she can see the truth of it, and so she does that with Nick, but because Frances has, like, specifically and very intentionally hid everything from Bobby, Bobby doesn't know that she's actually, like, doing something that's really hurtful, and... As you're reading it, you're like, oh, my God, you have this kind of, like, car crash moment where you're, like, watching this happen. And you, as the reader, know. And it's, like, a dramatic irony moment where you're like, oh, my God, stop. Like, shut up, Bobby. And it seems like she's being so mean. But then once you, like, zoom out from it a little bit, you realize that, like, yeah, that's probably, like, a flaw of hers. Like, she should leave things alone. And maybe that's part of why Francis doesn't want to tell her about it in the first place. But then when we see when Bobby actually does find out, she's very chill about it and, like, keeps the secret fine. So, really, Francis is just, like, putting her friend in this situation where she ends up unintentionally, like, blowing everything up. And I feel like Francis, like, does not have any awareness of her own, like – role in that, or how she could have prevented that by, like, being honest with her friend.
0: Yeah. I wanna... I wanna scroll back to how brazen Francis and Nick are being by sleeping together in the France house. I think that there are people in the world who can sleep a lot less than you and me and be okay. (laughs) I gotta sleep! Oh my god! (laughs) Like... Well, maybe it's because we bonked our heads too many times, but, like, I cannot- Actually, no, that's not true, because Sam has never had a concussion, and if he doesn't sleep at least nine and a half hours at night, he, like, genuinely cannot function the next day. It's crazy. But, (laughs) like, they are, like, drinking wine till, like, one in the morning, and then Francis will wait, like, another hour- For everyone in the house to go to bed, and then she'll go up to Nick's room, and then they'll have sex, and then she, like, sleeps next to him till, like, five in the morning, and then sneaks back downstairs? She is sleeping, like, four hours a night. Literally could never
1: be me. Literally could never be me. No! Oh my god.
0: Oh my god, no!
1: Like- Actually, I I say that, and I am thinking about how I- got to be in my anthropological inquiry class because I was staying up way too late for a boy and then I would sleep through my little quizzes. So maybe I did in the past have an era where I was like this when I was like 20. But Nick is 32 years old. And from what I hear about being in your 30s, you cannot do the stuff that you were up to when you were 21. So I don't understand how he is able to do that like she maybe like biologically she can get on with less sleep because i feel like i was better at that when i was like younger but 32 year old nick who is clinically depressed
0: i was gonna say that yeah Mm, i don't know (laughs) (laughs) like they also like i will say they do have the rush of like sneaking around but like And here, I think, is the crux of my issue with this book, if we move past Francis's passivity, is the central romance is with two people who don't seem to like each other that much.
1: Yeah, I think we could get a lot more of their actual, like, chemistry with one another beyond the... Which I feel like this happens all the time in, like, heterosexual romances where they, like, they are – they have good chemistry when they're flirting and they, like, are attached to each other in some sort of, like, primal way that probably has to do with their parents. And there's no in-between. There's no, like, space in-between there where they're friends. And, like, that is where – the majority of a relationship actually lives. Like, the majority of what you're actually doing when you're in a long-term relationship with someone is just being like, look at this funny video I saw on my phone.
0: Yeah. Like, do you need me to pick up anything from the store? Do you, like, are you having a good day? Like, (laughs) they do, like, they're flirting over email. And then I feel like... If we took the time to count up the number of sentences they actually say out loud to each other in this book, it would be – this might be an exaggeration. I feel like it would be less than 20.
1: Well, if you cut out all of the times that Nick is being like, Francis, you are acting like you don't like me – And Francis internally being like, he doesn't like me. He still loves his wife. He thinks I'm gross and disgusting. And then outwardly being like, it's interesting that you would think that I even like you. Like, outwardly, she's so mean. Inwardly, she's so like passive and wilting and like has this overwhelming feeling that like everyone else is like better or more worthy than her. And then outwardly, she's so mean to him. If you cut out all of that, Like, if you cut out all of the conversations that they have, which is, like, over half a dozen in the book, then you have, like, a couple that are about money. Like, about how he has a lot of money and she has no money. And then you have some about, like, their trauma. And then nothing, I think.
0: They never have a conversation about, like, like... This is going to sound silly. They never talk about like favorite sweaters or like <laughs> like like the kind of socks one of them likes to wear. Like they never have a conversation about like inane things that when you put all those inane building blocks together you have a whole person. Like we have no comprehension yeah. of Nick as a as an entire
1: person. They do talk about his coat that they really like. That's
0: true. That's true.
1: She wants to have his coat because – but it's because it's really nice, which kind of gets to the economics of it all, which I would like to talk about. But I don't want to go there yet because I still feel like we could talk about this more. Because, like, yes, it's true that you have to cut out a lot of those inane conversations. Like, I'm sure if someone was, like, writing down a transcript of all the conversations that I have with Diego, they would be like, this is the most boring stuff in the world. (laughs) Like, (laughs) we're talking – once again, about how he doesn't think he's ever had a yellow bell pepper. And I'm like, you've surely had a yellow bell pepper. Oh.
0: Like, in your oh, life. Yeah.
1: Okay. And we talked about that, like, so many times. And there's no way that anyone finds that interesting. But to us, it's just, like, an endless well of conversation. I can, it's <laughs> or a continual like, squabble. Yeah. Or not, and not even, like, a squabble, but just kind of, like, me being like, think about all the fajitas you've had and all the burritos you've had. <laughs> there's got to be a yellow bell pepper in one of them at some point. You don't, you Have you examined all of the beans in every burrito you've ever had? I'm sure there's a yellow bell pepper in there somewhere. But, like, there's so much, so many spaces in this novel where I feel like they could have, like, a silly little, like, battle of wits be, like, after they start to have their affair, but they initially flirt and then they get all serious and they have this, like, back and forth where, like, both of them thinks that the other one has way more power than them. And then all they care about is, like, figuring out who has more power and who's being passive. And they're both being so passive. And so that's, I don't know. It just kind of, like, makes it feel a little bit like, sad to me. Like, it's, like, bleak in a way that I don't think a lot of other love stories are. Like, I don't feel that way about Marianne and Connell in Normal People because I feel like there's a lot more of the, like, everydayness that makes love special. The only time we see... Because they're buddies.
0: Yeah. The only time we see, like, Nick and Francis have, like, normal conversations are when Bobby and Melissa are there. Like, the only thing in this book that really made me chuckle was when they were talking about the police in Britain, and Nick goes, well, I don't think it's all, um, I don't think ACAB stands for American Cops or Bastards. And I was like, (laughs) oh, that was witty. But, like, that's the only thing in the book where I was like, oh, that was witty.
1: They do, they are funny when it's all four of them. I had noticed that as well. Like it feels like they're more like being friends when it's all four of them. But then as soon as it's just the two of them, all of a sudden they're like acting out this drama where like they're kind of like talking about like, is it weird that I'm so much older than you? Like you just, you torture me with your, like I never know what you're thinking. It's like, Oh my God. You know what it is like? It's like the difference between. Edward and Bella and Jacob and Bella because with – I'm taking your lack of noise to mean that you don't know what I mean. No,
0: I'm agreeing. (laughs) i am seeing it.
1: Because one of my students asked me recently, like, am I team Edward or team Jacob? And I never read the books and I only recently watched the movies. But from the movies, I can already – like, I have a strong opinion, which is that Edward All he's ever talking about with Bella is, like, how much he wants her and how much he'll do do anything to have her. But it just, like, doesn't ever feel real to me. It always feels like this sort of, like, wish fulfillment that, like, teen girls want someone hot who will just, like, give up everything for them. And, like, blow up their entire, like, life and existence in order to be with them. Whereas Jacob is Bella's buddy. And they're like hanging out and yes, he like loves her, but in like a very like real and alive way. And obviously then there's like the later stuff about her, him like imprinting on her baby and then just Stephanie Meyer ruins it. But like towards the beginning, I think that there's like a, you see like two different types of dynamics where one is the one that a lot of people like really are drawn to, which is that, like, all-consuming, like, infatuation love. hmm And then the, like, sort of platonic but also romantic love that seems like it has, like, a lot more legs to it. Like, it could actually last in a way that, outside of stories, I don't think Edward and Bella ever stay together.
0: Well, I don't know if the movies do a good job of explaining this. But you know that, like, Bella has, like, the one in a billion blood for Edward, right? Where, like, every second he's with her, it's not like when he's with other humans. She, like, smells, like, preternaturally good to him because she's his, like, soulmate. And that's why he leaves school for a week when she moves there is because he is, like, frightened he will lose control because her blood smells so good. So, like, his obsession with her is partially because like she is like the most specific aphrodisiac in the world for Edward. Which makes the romance arguably even more fucked up.
1: Yeah. Cause is it like an aphrodisiac or is it like I wanna suck her blood? Like I wanna eat her her. I think it's both. <sighs> you know, not to kink shame, but to kink shame. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, my favorite book podcast did Twilight Month, and they spent, I think, every single episode, all four episodes, they spent time trying to figure out, like, how he manages to impregnate Bella, because vampires don't have any blood.
1: (laughs) I have You know, that isn't- Go ahead. I was gonna say, that's an excellent point. Did they, like, come to a conclusion?
0: They think he might come with venom. Uh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> venom come? Yeah. No way.
0: Well, it's certainly but not regular come. Well, and the other well, question is: is, have is, he venom? Just,
1: is he just hard all the time? Because he do, doesn't have wait, any. Do bats butt. have venom? What? Do bats have venom? I don't they know. They don't, do they? No, but the they va- like, all have rabies.
0: But the vampires in Stephanie Meyer's books do produce venom. That's how you like
1: turn people. And that's why it hurts. It's like Well, then wouldn't Bella have turned into a vampire from being impregnated by Edward?
0: Great question. You can't think And that is the hard baby a vampire? It. The baby is Yeah, so the way that Renesmee's awful fucking name um the way that her aging works is she's gonna age to like age 18 and then she's gonna live forever
1: hmm convenient
0: yeah she really was like I'm simply wish fulfilling this because I don't yes. do you think maybe she had to have the marriage have a pregnancy because she's Mormon and they like have to multiply <laughs>
1: <laughs> she she was like I don't care about any of the Mormon rules except for this one in my book we do not have exceptions yeah you do have to get pregnant i don't know i feel like they probably maybe there's like a like an ingrained sense that like two people being together is not real until they like reproduce you know like maybe it's like a subconscious feeling but, well, I don't like, know. Is she, like, still Mormon? Is she, was she raised Mormon? Or is she, like, a practicing Mormon?
0: I think she is a partially practicing Mormon. Like, mm. I don't know. I don't really... It's hard for me to tell how strict the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints still is. Like, I think it might literally depend on, like, the parish you belong to.
1: Yeah. I've watched so many documentaries about the Mormons, and I still feel like I don't know anything about them. Well... And maybe that's because they're so specific, like, regionally.
0: Yeah. The ones in Kansas City are, like, fairly normal.
1: Yeah. I had a lot of Mormon friends in high school, and they were... As normal as I was in high school. So. It's
0: confusing. <laughs> that the only thing that's different, I think, is, like, the complete willingness to go on a
1: mission. Which, I mean, I grew up in a very evangelical environment where a lot of people did that, too. So,
0: Just, like, a gap like, year not, like, an of organized doing a mission? One. Or are you talking about, like, yeah. short-term mission trips?
1: No, like like, gap years... Where you – I mean, the big difference is that you raise your own support. You don't get the support of the church. But, like, the Mormon church is so rich. So that makes sense to me, that they they don't have to do that. But yeah. in the evangelical churches, there's a lot more wealth hoarding. So you have really rich pastors, and then you have, like, middle class, recently graduated high school students who, like – write letters to everyone they've ever met to be like, give me money so that I can go build a house in Guatemala. Even though I have no experience doing that. Anyway. We're <laughs> back to Ireland. Back to Ireland. Back to back Ireland.
0: To... We're leaving Forks. We're leaving Utah behind.
1: <laughs> but yeah, I do think that of the two love stories that, sort of are at the heart of this book or I guess the multiple love stories that are at the heart of this book to me the least compelling one is the Francis and Nick one I think that everybody else's relationships to each other are more interesting
0: I would agree with that do we want to talk more about like the ways in which I I think that you should defend Bobby okay because I think that I'll, I'll read the sentence I put in the outline and then you can tell me all the ways that like Bobby is acting so normal. Cause I think that we should get into the fact that like Bobby and Francis's relationship is very sweet and actually like generally a very good representation of friendship and yeah. beyond friendship, I think, as well. So. Mm-hmm. Like, one of the things that Francis says, Francis says at the beginning of the book is that Bobby and I discussed at length what Bobby would wear to dinner under the guise of talking about what we should both wear. Which, like, I read that and I was like, ugh, fuck Bobby. <laughs> like, making it all about her, but like, Francis is an unreliable narrator. What do you think is happening here, Jess?
1: So I think that there's, like, a couple different things going on. It, like, kind of depends on how much you're going to um ascribe intentionality to what Sally Rooney's doing here. Because, like, on one level, I think that she kind of, like, um is activating, like, insecurity in the reader. Where, like, you immediately, Tuck, were like, oh my god, I am, like incensed on behalf of francis like this is a self-centered friend that's so shitty probably because you've like experienced that before right like i think that all of us have like been in a situation before where like our friend like bobby at this time like has a crush on melissa and so she's like really pressed about how she's going to come across going to dinner at her house and like we've all been in a situation where we're like "Ugh, like i don't want to talk about this crush you have again because you're like talking about it ad nauseum and like you never really like say that to the person because it's not worth bringing up at all but you kind of can be a little bit fatigued of it at least like to a small extent but most of us like see that as ourselves being a bad friend or at least like come to I think mature a little bit in being like okay like I need to be patient with them because like they have a big crush and like this is just something that happens. But Frances, because she's our point of view character, because we're getting everything from her side, and because she does lots of this, where she always is kind of, like, presenting herself as, like, the wallflower in any situation with Bobby, then we, instead of being like, oh, Frances, have some patience, we're like, Bobby is so selfish and so self-centered. And on the back of the book, they describe her as self-possessed. And I think that there's a little bit of a fine line between, like, a self-possessed 20-year-old woman and a self-centered 20-year-old woman in the eyes of, like, the other people around her a lot of the time. So, to me, how Bobby, like, comes across sort of, like, as the novel progresses is we start to see how, like, her, like, intense selfness like she really is a self she's like a fully developed person and that in a lot of ways is like intimidating to francis or like threatening to francis because francis still feels like she is this like unformed blob of a human and there's like spots where she talks about this like in the very first pair or the first chapter she describes her and bobby's relationship from high school and they dated for like a year and she um talks about how she, like, didn't know who she was at all before she met Bobby. And she says, hearing Bobby talk talk about me felt like seeing myself in the mirror for the first time. I asked Bobby questions like, do I have long legs or short? And that's just an example of, like, the, like, most basic questions of, like, what am I shaped like, Bobby? Like, what am I like? (laughs) Um, Just shows how, like, amorphous she is in her head and like how she doesn't feel like she is like this person who exists and because bobby doesn't really have that problem like bobby definitely has other problems that we kind of see later on but she doesn't have that problem and like i think it's a very natural human thing to feel like whatever problem we are like in the thick of Is the most real problem to have. And like if someone doesn't have that problem. Then they don't have any problem. And for Frances. Identity is like a really really difficult thing. She like does not feel worthy of like anything. And so she feels like Bobby's like. Belief in herself. Is like a threat to her almost. At least at the beginning. And I think that. Sally Rooney does that. In such like a deft way. Like she does it in a really interesting way. Where like it activates that same feeling in the reader and then sort of like flips it as the novel goes so you're like yeah fuck bobby she's a bad friend and then it starts to become clear to you as it becomes clear to francis that that's not actually true and that francis is really the one who's being selfish because she's the one who's like um seeing herself as like the center of everything by being so passive, which is kind of, like, ironic, but that is something that Bobby tel- tells her, like, at the very end. She's like, you pretend to have no power so that you – I don't remember exactly what she says, but she's just basically like, "Um, you pretend to have no power so that you can act however you want. Like, you feel like if you don't have power, then you don't have responsibility for your actions. And that's the way that Francis sort of has to mature through the book.
0: I think that Sally Rooney really does do that last part very deftly of like making the reader believe in the main character and then kind of flipping the situation because it is so interest. Like, you know that I do not know the difference between empathy and sympathy, but I know <laughs> that... I like felt for Frances at the beginning of the book for the first like 25% and then she begins to be so passive that I as an already impatient person like immediately lose patience with her. I think that's a big issue that I like generally have with this book is like Frances's passivity makes me want to scream and I like don't really have a lot of like sympathy empathy i don't really feel for francis towards the end of the book when all of the things that she did do by being passive come back to bite her yeah like i'm kind of like why can't you my mom calls it like i have an inability to be patient with people who i feel should be more capable
1: and yeah, like that is a, that is a trait of yours. That no. is a
0: trait of mine. <laughs> a well-known one. And, like, <laughs> some, I think that it is really hard to be a 21-year-old woman. I think it is generally yeah. really hard to grow up. But some of the
1: things Frances yes. is doing, she should be doing better. <laughs> like. Which, she, I think that. Because people have the tendency to, like, take media that is by women, take art that is by women, and think that it's just, like, direct confessional, that they're just, like, pouring their unmitigated selves out onto the page, just, like, vomiting it all out there. People tend to think that, like, Sally Rooney is her characters. And I think that Sally Rooney, in this book, is doing a very good job of, like, purposefully writing a character that is doing an annoying thing who then later in the book sort of like learns that she was doing an annoying thing and like making her own problems worse through her passivity and through her obsession with other people's like capability and her like lack of agency and she's like making herself into an object to be kind of like tossed around by Nick and by Bobby and by Melissa. When, as we see in like the end of the book, she has conversations with each of them where each of them are like, I never saw you that way. I was like scared of you because you were mean. (laughs) And like that your narrative of what was happening does not match up with anyone else's experience. And so I think that Sally Rooney is like, very much aware that Francis is annoying and is, like, trying to say something through her. Yeah. Which is why it, like, kind of pisses me off when people talk about how unlikable Sally Rooney's characters are. (laughs) Because, like, you got to read the end of the book.
0: (laughs) You've got to read the end of the book, and I think you also have to be willing to see, like, kind of ugly bits in yourself. Yes. Like, everyone is passive in relationships in ways that they shouldn't be. Yes. Like, guilty. (laughs) And like, maybe that's why I hate Francis so much. Actually, no, I am not acting like Francis is. I do ask for help when I need it. Whereas Francis is... Francis takes not wanting to be a bother to such a degree that she will, like, just starve instead of telling her friends she doesn't have any money because her alcoholic dad forgot to put money in her account.
1: Well, she also, like, is sort of, like, identifies really closely with her suffering. Like, there's a quote that I put in the outline that talks about it, like, very explicitly that I want to read that we can then transition into talking about the... Indemetriosis and Sally Rooney's Crimes Against Women, if you want.
0: I would love that. I have scrolled to that part of the outline.
1: Cause she so after they start their affair and Nick like leaves town for a job, he's an actor, which like is so annoying and also makes him, in my head, indistinguishable from Joe Alwyn. Alwyn? Alwyn. Whatever. Uh <laughs> they he, run like, to Do his, like, handsome blonde man job of being a mildly successful actor. And she gets cystitis, which, like, is related to what she'll later find out is her endometriosis. But she says... I was sick at the time. I had cystitis. For a while, the persistent discomfort and mild fever felt psychologically appropriate, and I did nothing about them. I felt disgusting, like my body was full of evil bacteria. I knew that Nick was suffering no similar after effects. There was nothing similar about us. He had screwed me up in his hand like paper and tossed me away. So that quote is such a good encapsulation of, like, like, one, her sort of like, not just willingness, but like, almost like desire to suffer, because she feels it's psychologically appropriate, like it matches with how she feels. And so she doesn't want to do anything about it, which connects with a lot of other ways. She like neglects her physical health and like, is self harming in direct and indirect ways throughout the book. But also, when she says, I knew Nick was suffering no similar after effects, we later find out that during this exact same time that Francis has cystitis, and she's like has a mild fever. Nick has pneumonia and like a relapse of his like very severe clinical depression, and is like literally like he is also on a sick bed suffering, and Francis because she like refuses to contact him and like just like has is like so wrapped up in her own suffering, she is like there's nothing similar about us. He screwed me up in his hand like paper and tossed me away like. There's no real, like, evidence to confirm that. She just believes that because it sort of, like, fits her, like, core belief that she is, like, unworthy of love and will always suffer.
0: It's kind of crazy of her to be, like, so passive and so dramatic at the same time.
1: (laughs) I think that that's those kind of, like, match up. Like, at my most passive, I am also my most dramatic. Because, like, that's how you sustain yourself. Like, while you're being passive, you have to, like, tell yourself a story about, like, how you are, like, uniquely put upon and you should be <laughs> sainted. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, when I am in my... I hate being a teacher era and I'm like, I need to like find a new job that is not so detrimental to my mental health. A lot of the time I have to like really stop myself from being like, I'm going through a tribulation, like the people in the Bible. (laughs) You said I'd be happy on an (laughs) ark. Yeah. Like everybody who loves me is like, you know, you don't have to do this job. And I'm like, I do. I was put on the earth to suffer oh my
0: god and then you get over it and then you tell me all the different jobs in Kansas City you're looking at that would fit your specific skill set and then you keep teaching
1: (laughs) exactly and then I just I keep doing exactly what I've been doing and then I repeat the cycle
0: yeah Okay, let's talk about endometriosis. Let's get back on topic.
1: Yeah, endometriosis. Okay. Okay.
0: (laughs) So halfway through this book, we find out that the debilitating periods that Frances has, she like throws up, she's down for the count for like two or three days. I will say, by the way, my IUD, which is supposed to make me not have periods, has me bent over with cramps at work.
1: Bend her over, are
0: you? (laughs) (laughs) Fuck off! I like. I was like squatting on the ground, like deep breathing behind the potting bench by myself yesterday. And my coworker was like, "Are you okay?" And I was like, "Nope."
1: But I'm here. Oh, you know, being a woman is constant pain. I really was experiencing (laughs) the feminist mystique yesterday.
0: Um but anyway, she gets that was diagnosed. Yesterday? Yeah. Wow. She gets diagnosed with endometriosis and immediately is like I can't tell anyone that I am ill, that I am dying, that I have
1: a disease killing me. Which to just to like for any of you who are not Rooney Heads who've never read this book, or If you haven't heard me talk about it incessantly, because I too have endometriosis. What endometriosis is, is basically the tissue on the inside of your uterus, which sheds when you have a period. That's like the actual matter that comes out of you, the just like bloody gunk that comes out of you. If you have uterine tissue that's growing not just on the inside of your uterus, but on the outside of your uterus, then that also has a period, but it has nowhere to go. And so it just like gets stuck inside of your body in like your organs and stuff and so that also has a period whenever you have a period and so then it turns into scar tissue that's just in your abdomen making your life hell and that is what Francis is experiencing for this book but she's experiencing like kind of a lot of compounding physical ailments I would say a lot of which have to do with her, like, aforementioned lack of care for herself that make it seem like her endomet- endometriosis is, like, absolutely debilitating and is, like, a death sentence in a way that it just, like, isn't to those of us who have first-hand experience with it. Because she's, like, fainting in public, like, multiple times and is just, in general, like, not really functional. But, like... How much of that is because she never eats? She doesn't eat. And she doesn't sleep.
0: She's also taking, like, a ton of pain medication. And, like, which, it is just ibuprofen. And I do think the British are a lot. Like, Europe, for some reason, is like, ibuprofen? You mean opioids?
1: (laughs) Uh, Whereas, like... You mean...
0: Americans are like... Yeah, I took my 2-ibuprofen for breakfast, and then I took my 2-ibuprofen with dinner. And maybe there's a middle ground.
1: That's like candy. Yum, 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 (laughs) yum for my liver.
0: But, like, the thing that is so dramatic about her taking the pain medication is she's like, well, the pain could come at any time. And one thing about endometriosis because I really have spoken about this with Jess at length, because we lived together for three (laughs) years, is it makes your period really irregular. But it seems as if going on hormonal birth control generally worked pretty well for her. But she still, even while she's taking the pill, is also, like, popping ibuprofen like it's candy because she's like, the pain could come back. She knows when the pain is coming. Like, she's being irrational. Not to, like, gaslight a woman.
1: (laughs) No, she's being crazy. (laughs) I Well, she just, like, is over-identifying with the, like, explanatory power of this diagnosis, I think. I think that she's, like, okay, so, like, this is the explanation for, like, why my body feels like it is, like, this alien creature that is against me. Like, she's like, my body is full of evil bacteria and it is bad. And I think that like a lot of young women have that like conviction, sort of that like deeply felt conviction, even if they like are given all of the messaging about like empowerment and like loving yourself and like are feminists because like France is definitely a feminist, but She still has this, like, deeply felt conviction that her body is just, like, against her and, like, disgusting. And I think that endometriosis sort of serves as, like, confirmation of that for her. And she really, like, clings to it because it, like, confirms a narrative she already has about herself. And that is part of why I feel like it's a really – like, honestly, that, that felt very true to me. Like, I have sort of, like, lived this in some ways, I think, uh, especially with, like, her fears about infertility because endometriosis can make you infertile. And, like, I used to talk all the time when I was in college about how I just could feel that I was barren, that there was, like, tumbleweeds going around in my <laughs> inside of my ovaries, which I don't really feel anymore. But, like, it, that was definitely something I felt at the time. And I think that Frances sort of has that going on. But, it just, like, I can't get over how annoying it is when she says it the way she says it. The way she says it is deeply
0: obnoxious.
1: Yes. Like, do you want to talk about how all of them are waifs?
0: Yeah, we should talk about how all of them are waifs. Although, that also could go into comparison contrast, because, I don't know. I, and maybe this is kind of, I, I feel like Sally Rooney is kind of playing fast and loose with the disordered eating girlies. Yes. Because I think that in this book, it is acknowledged that the way that Frances is treating her body is bad. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But like, in normal people, it really isn't. Like, everyone is just, like, so thin as to be interesting. They all have, like, very angular faces. They all, like, Rooney is just like, yeah, we got a thin Irish bitch in here.
1: The quote that I put in the outline that's literally, she's describing her physical appearance as she's looking in the mirror. She literally says, my face was plain, but I was so extremely thin as to look interesting. That is literally, like... A pro Anna Tumblr post. Like, I could, I can see that, like, on a pro Anna blog, which is part of what makes this, like, a really, really gross thing that she's doing here, because, like, there's so many other things that I, like, feel like she's being really smart about and, like, thinking a lot about, like, how it's coming across to the reader. But with this, it's just like, how are you, like, not seeing how, That is a really harmful implication of, like, whatever you're trying to say about, like, how women don't take care of their bodies sometimes out of, like, like a lack of regard for themselves and, like, all these different things. Like, yes, it's true that that's happening, but, like, you're not doing a very good job of showing why that's, like, harmful if you are also talking about how it makes them more interesting or more beautiful.
0: Yeah, it's just really not good. Like, also, I kind of think that, like, it's a pretty overlapping Venn diagram between, like, the kind of women who really love Sally Rooney and, like, the women who have struggled with disordered eating. Like, I don't think it's a full, just it's one circle, but, like... I think there's a lot of overlap in a way that this is, like, particularly strange of Sally to lean into always having a thin, waifish woman who, like, is interesting because of her thinness.
1: Yeah. Because a lot of the other, like, plots are sort of, here's how this person, like, wants to be interesting through how smart they are, or through how, like cold and like uncaring they are but really they're interesting because of how loving they are like that is sort of the journey that she goes on and I'm like okay yes and also she could be loving to herself but she never really like has that that never really comes around and happens I don't think like she comes around to having a very loving relationship with Bobby and a loving relationship with Nick and sort of like a at least, like, peaceable relationship with Melissa. But she never really, like, like, stops the beef with herself, I don't think. And that makes me sad, because I think that, like, I, I have students who read this book, and who read Sally Rooney books, and I, like, really want them to not just, like, respond to the love story of it all but also to kind of like see how like smart women can like come to like love themselves as well as just be loved you know
0: yeah I think I think that's something we missed talking about the first time we talked about this is like Frances comes to understand herself in relation to other people much better towards the end of the book her relationships all improve but like Frances still doesn't, I think, like herself very much by the end of the book. Yeah. I think
1: she- And even, she kind of has, like- Sorry, finish. Nope, I don't think I have more to say. (laughs) She even sort of, like, has this almost, like, Buddhist, like, non-selfhood that she comes to. Like, less than a, like, self-love. It's more that she's like, oh, I don't really exist. Like, she says- and some point when she's, like, apologizing to Melissa or to Bobby, I can't remember. She says, like, I wanted all these things for myself. Like, I wanted Nick to love me all all to myself. I wanted Bobby's affection all to myself because I thought I existed, like, as a specific person. Which is, like, tricky because on the one hand, that is – she's, like, having this sort of spiritual realization that like everything is interconnected and that her relationships with all these people that she loves are like intricately connected to their relationships with other people and she shouldn't be trying to kind of like control all of that or like um always look for her value in other people's like relationships and stuff but it does end up coming across a little bit like she's like again erasing herself by having this epiphany about like how she is not like separate from anybody else i wish that there was like a little bit of a different way of coming at that so that it's clear that like she does exist and she is important and like her point of view is important and she doesn't have to like sacrifice one type of passivity that was her like passive aggressive sort of like everybody is worth more than me for another type of passivity which is that like nobody really exists and we're all just this network of interconnected things like yes on one level yes but also like you do have the right to like exist as an autonomous being you know
0: yeah like our actions affect each other, but also, like, you are allowed to exist in the world that you live in. Yeah. Okay, I feel like we should get into... Uh, we've been recording for an hour and 12 minutes, so I feel like um, that we should get into what are we supposed to be learning from this book and how does it succeed? Yes. Um. So, I was kind of cracking up reading the outline because the rest of the outlines we've done for the pod, people haven't really put any quotes in except for, um, when Sam put all the quotes from the Spanish love deception smut that he wanted to rewrite, um, (laughs) but I put in the outline a quote from the book Graceling that I think about every time that I am, like, poking at a new idea in my head. Like, when I'm like, I need to leave my job, I always feel as if I am, like, poking at an idea as if it is a new limb, which is something that, like, Katza thinks about when a new idea is brought to her in the book Graceling, and I think about it every time, and I feel like Frances is poking at a new limb every single time she has a thought. Like, Mm -hmm. every time she thinks something could be changing in her world, she has to, like, come at it from every angle and think about it and decide whether or not she has to do anything about it. And while she is doing all her poking and prodding, she never, like, diagnoses it. She, like, never comes to a conclusion. And I think, like, the point of what you're supposed to be learning from that is that that is bad. But I think she does it to a point that it is difficult to come to that understanding. Like, the first time I read it, I was so frustrated with Frances that I was like, am I supposed to be rooting for her? Like, that is how I felt the whole time I read this book.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I think that that's it. That's a good criticism of her. Especially because she doesn't, like... Ever take someone else's perspective in all of her thinking about, like, everything that she – like, she's thinking about, like, whether she – like, what she wants to do with her future because she's like, I never want to get a job. I think it's kind of unethical to, like, get a job under capitalism, but also I, like, want to have a good life, which we'll talk about more in, in CompCon probably, but – She also is like, what about Bobby? What about Nick? What about Melissa? What about this? What about that? But she never is like, I wonder what they're thinking. Let me think about it from their perspective and see whether I'm treating them well or not. Like, (laughs) she does all this thinking, but then she doesn't ever think about anyone else, like, as a real person.
0: She, the only time that we see her really think of, she does think about Melissa's feelings when she finds out about the affair with Nick. And she thinks about Bobby's feelings when Bobby finds out about the story that she wrote and is getting published. But she doesn't think about, yeah, like, not why Bobby would be upset or what Bobby's feelings are or why she would not want her business out like that. She's just like, oh, I made Bobby upset.
1: Yeah. And it's almost like she's, like, which I think that, like, my... My worst work, my worst work interpersonally ever has been – I sort of like can recognize it in how Frances is thinking. Like she's like so wrapped up in her own suffering and her own like narrative of herself that she like can recognize when she's hurting other people. Like when she's literally like sleeping with Melissa's husband and writing a story about Bobby and getting it published and like selling it without Bobby's permission, without telling Bobby anything about it. And then Bobby gets it sent to her by someone else and is like, what the fuck? Like, both of those, that is Francis being the villain. But she never thinks about herself as a villain. She only thinks of herself as, like, oh, they're mad at me. What do I do? This feels bad that they are mad. <laughs> and, like, I think that in my, like, worst hours, that has been how I've been thinking, where I, like, really it doesn't even occur to me that, like, oh, I should feel, like, horribly guilty about that because I'm so wrapped up in myself. And she does that to a pretty astounding degree, I think, in this book. (laughs) And it's only at the very end. And even when she does sort of apologize, we never really get her thinking about it. She just does it. And we're like, okay. Cool. Good. Good. But, like... We didn't really get her thought process that got her there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Francis.
1: (laughs) But she is, like you said, I think that you're right that Sally Rooney books are about growing up. And I think that she does do a lot of growing up in this novel. And sort of gets out of her own head in a lot of meaningful ways. And I do love the ending. I really do.
0: I... Yeah. One of the other things I put down is like in the section about what am I supposed to be learning and doesn't succeed is that you can grow and change and the way that you perceive people and the way that they perceive you really does change all the time. And I think sometimes in my life, I have thought that that like, like, I have thought that that means that like, I am not being consistent, or that like, I'm being mm-hmm. flaky. But like, people are allowed to change and I am allowed to change. And I think that it is like good to know those things. And like, I think it makes forgiveness a lot easier. Like, yeah, p- people are allowed to grow up. We, I have said that a lot about like a couple of people that I knew in high school who like, we did not really leave high school on like the greatest terms, but in the times that I have seen them since like, I have originally, like, dreaded it a little bit because I'm like, oh, my God. The last time I interacted with this person consistently was when they were a 17-year-old. Of course they sucked. (laughs) They were 17. Every 17-year-old is the most selfish person on the planet. Right. You just feel like you're not being the most selfish person on the planet.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that, like, that that's... Like, books about adolescents that, like, are able to capture that tend to, like, be clowned for being annoying. Like, I think about this with, like, John Green books sometimes. Like, I think that John Green is writing intelligently about teenagers for teenagers, but people, like, come for him by being like, his, his characters are so self-absorbed and pretentious. And it's like, yeah. Have you met a teenager? <laughs> like, They are doing these, like, big gestures of, like, ridiculous, like, identity formation. Like, Augustus Waters with his stupid cigarette in his stupid mouth. Because, like, that's what teenagers do. Like, they act like that. And I think that, like, there are some writers who are really, really good at, like, capturing that in a way that, like, is compelling for a lot of people. But they have to risk being misunderstood In order to do that, they have to risk, like, having some people be, like, what the fuck? This is so annoying. In order to, like, write something that really, really resonates with people who are, like, I don't know what to do. I haven't grown up yet, and I know I need to because this sucks. And, like, while they're in that process, there's books like this that can kind of, like, be a comfort to them, I think.
0: I would agree with that. I think we should save... The polyamory of it all for comparison contrast. Because Mm -hmm. I think all of her books have, if not polyamory, at least, like, different ways of loving the same person. And also, like, I don't know. Sally Rooney be having people break up and get back together a lot.
1: Yeah, it's true.
0: So I think maybe we can pop that into We've also been recording for almost an hour and a half and a woman only has so much so much editing within
1: her. Yes. Um Can I say my last thing about the ending yes, that I have absolutely. highlighted? And then we can wrap up do our wrap up activities. Yes please. So I think that the reason why I love the ending so much is because she – like, you were talking about how she, like, pokes at a new limb the whole time. And you're like, okay, when are we going to start walking with these limbs? When are we going to, like, actually put them into practice and, like, live and do things and stop just, like, sitting in your house with the blinds drawn, like, rotting away? <laughs> and. um The end, which I don't really care about her and Nick getting back together at all, to be honest, but the end where she, like, has a realization is where I really like it, and I put the quote in the outline, and I'm going to read it. This is, like, the last paragraph of the whole book where she gets accidentally called by Nick, and he's just, like, talking to her, and they're, like, having a conversation, and they kind of have – Like a meaningful conversation, even though they didn't mean to and they forgive each other and everything because they've been broken up and stuff. But the last lines are her sort of like putting away her habit of just like poking at ideas. And she just decides that she's going to make a decision. So she says, I closed my eyes. Things and people moved around me, taking positions in obscure hierarchies, participating in systems I didn't know about and never would. A complex network of objects and concepts. You live through certain things before you understand them. You can't always take the analytical position. Enter, enter. Come and get me, I said. So she's saying, like, we're getting back together. And I don't, like I said, I don't really care about the come and get me part. I think it's kind of like written in a lame way. But I do love the, like, things and people moved around me taking positions in obscure hierarchies. Like, I, don't have to understand every single thing, basically. Like, I don't have to, like, have the exact right opinion or, like, be the most precocious 21-year-old in every room and, like, impress everyone with my intellect in order to, like, be loved and to live. And she sort of is, like, learning not to intellectualize everything because it just paralyzes her. So she says, you have to live through certain things before you understand them. And I think about that all the time. Like, I think that the reason why I even like this book at all <laughs> is because of that. Like, if that wasn't there, I don't think that I would find this book h- worth half as much. I think that that part, like, you live through certain things before you understand them is like a really, really important insight that sort of redeems a lot of the rest of it.
0: If we don't see Francis grow, the book is purposeless yes and like this is the the concrete proof that francis is growing
1: yeah she's like living and not just thinking
0: yeah wow jess just reacted with um two exclamation points to her own points in the outline did you guys know that you can highlight things and react to them in Google
1: Drive now? I, that is one of the main ways that I interact with my students writing. <laughs> I just put emojis on them. Sometimes I'll just put the like hand over mouth emoji. Like gagged. Oh my god. Does the that mean said that. gagged? <laughs> I mean that it just means like like oh my god, and uh-huh. like people just say gagged. The girlies say that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like half the podcast could you could just be you
0: catching me up on the slang from the teens.
1: They are innovators.
0: They are. I that. They really are. They never want to the say. They're the engine a, of the culture. They don't want to say a full word ever. <laughs>
1: It's true. And they, like, really can end your life with, like, certain certain little phrases. I've, like, been thinking about in my head just kind of, like, a ranking of all the things that they can say to you that will just, like, ruin your day. And I, I will not even be sharing with them because everybody will be like, Jess, you cannot be seen in public ever again they <laughs> uh i love them so much <laughs> would that be like, but they really
0: would that be like um every time that um redacted got broken up within college he said that he was going to join the priesthood like every time <laughs> every time a student just like absolutely ends your shit you're like oh my god i have to leave the teaching profession and like
1: Flee to a nunnery. Yeah, well, the thing about it... Well, nuns are still teachers, so, like, I wouldn't... Oh, God! You'd never escape! (laughs) And those Catholic school
0: kids learn to be mean in
1: special ways. They... I'm telling you, they're sites of innovation. Schools are sites of linguistic innovation. They, like, figure out how to just, like, very subtly... And, and like, it's not even, like, the Gen Z way of being mean is, like, so different from the way that we were taught about, like, bullying and stuff. Like, they're not even mean in a way that they're, like, trying to hurt your feelings. They just will, like, casually clown you in a way that's, like, truly affectionate. But you're, like, how did you, like, see into the inside of my soul and, like, figure out how to just, like, play me like a fiddle? How did you do that? I don't understand. Like, what is it about – my like external persona that makes it so clear that that would destroy me. For instance, they have been talking about like certain things of mine that are like incredibly millennial. Okay. And I feel like I have like done some work to try and not have all the millennial traits. Like I don't have a side part anymore. I don't wear skinny jeans anymore. Like, all the basic stuff. I don't say, I did a thing on Instagram. God. But there's, like, other things where they're like, did you get those earrings from Target? That's such a millennial move. And I'm like, I did get them from Target. You're right. Why is that a millennial thing? And then they're like, yeah, I get mine from Depop.
0: (laughs) These kids are too comfortable online shopping. They are too comfortable paying for shipping.
1: (laughs) I know. And they... I don't know. Anytime that I, like, try to make a little joke that they don't think is funny, they always say, you thought you ate, and I want to, like, collapse into, like, a tiny ball. Because you thought you ate is, like, the meanest thing that I... I've been speaking on this to a bunch of people. If you're hearing this and you've heard me say this, I've been repeating it a lot. Because... The only two things you can say when someone says, oh, you thought you ate, is either, yeah, I did eat, I did say something clever, and that is embarrassing, because then you're, like, doubling down. Or you could say, oh, I wasn't really trying that hard. And that's also embarrassing. And you can cut all of this out. This is just a a thing that I've been thinking about. They just, they can kind of, they can get your ass
0: I feel like you could just like hit him with the "you'll understand when you're older," maybe,
1: and then the, and then they'll be like, "understand what forehead wrinkles," and then I oh! just have to go home. <laughs>
0: no, they'll <laughs> get your ass any day, anyway.
1: Yeah, they were like making fun of me for using Vaseline. Ugh, <laughs> uh, it's really hard out here.
0: It is hard out here. Oh my god.
1: One of them one time said, you look like, this was actually an eighth grader. He was 13 years old. He said, you look like you listened to Tyler, the creator while going to Trader Joe's. And I don't mean that in a nice way. You
0: needed to leave that school anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Also, there's nothing. Well, I don't know if I've ever listened to a Tyler, the creator song, but like every white woman looks like they go to Trader Joe's. If you make a salary and are a white woman, you look like you go to Trader Joe's. (laughs) That's true. And that is true. Like, and I'm glad you said that. (laughs) I, well, I think I have to have the salary caveat because, like, maybe we have to put, like, a, no, because I think I probably still looked like I went to Trader Joe's when I was in college. Maybe we have to do it, let's not get too in the weeds. Maybe we have to do it by, like, (laughs) the median income of the household you grew up in. And that's what makes you look like a white woman who goes to Trader Joe's.
1: I think, like, a couple years ago, Will was telling me about, like, an article about how Trader Joe's is, like, specifically market research to appeal to, like, liberal arts graduates who are overeducated and underemployed and therefore, like, don't have that much money to spend on like actual high-end groceries and so they like create this sort of like high-end grocery experience that's not that expensive but partially because they just like package things in like impossibly small containers like everything is like four servings or less and there like a lot of things about it are designed to be like oh you're like finding you're like hunting through all the stuff, and you have these Trader Joe's finds that you feel, like, proud of, even though it's just a, like, grocery store like any other grocery store. People, like, over-identify with it, and it specifically is, like, meant for the NPR crowd, which I am a firm member of.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. That makes a lot of sense. I go to Trader Joe's, like,
1: twice
0: a year. But I think I would go more if I didn't work so much, and it wasn't quite mm-hmm. so out of the way for me. Although it's more out of the way for you.
1: Yeah, but, you know, I have noki will travel. I I have to go there. The only salsa I like on my eggs is there. I really have become so... Like grossly dependent on like my specific groceries from specific places, and there's like twelve different grocery stores I have to go to to get all my little pet items.
0: Oh God! I just go to twelve Aldi. is an exaggeration. It's why Probably I... like five. It's I only go to Aldi, and I only go to Aldi in Kansas City, and it's why I never have alcohol in the house because Aldi doesn't sell alcohol in Kansas City, Missouri. Hmm. No winking owl for you? No winking owl for me, which is good because the Moscato, I gotta tell you, I've aged out of it. It makes me feel kind of sick.
1: Yeah, it definitely was never good. We just were poor and needed to be drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, everyone, we're
0: an hour and 34 minutes in. Thank you for listening. We are not gonna do Goodreads. It's pretty boring out there. There are some people putting Phoebe Bridgers quotes in the Goodreads, etc. Follow us on Instagram at All My Friends Are English Majors. Nope, that's not what it is. Follow us on Instagram at English Majors Pod. Um, send us a email at EnglishMajorsPod at gmail.com. Next week we will be reading Normal People. Jess, did I miss anything? Um, I don't think so. I think that's everything. Okay, bye everybody!